Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As we return to this glorious chapter we mentioned last week is the heart, not only of Paul's letter, but by many uh, looked at as the heart of New Testament theology itself and the entirety of New Testament revelation. When computers were first uh, invented years and years, decades ago, the whole system was built on these tiny magnetic rings that were magnetized, uh, that were around loops and magnetized in one direction or another and formed a very basic binary code, either a one or a zero, based on the magnetic direction in which the wire was, uh, was magnetized. We came to call these uh, little chips the core or the core memory And it was uh, essential and fundamental to everything that took place in the computer. No matter what kind of process might be going on or no matter what kind of application might be the end product, everything was really flowing through this essential core at some level. More recently, I understand, computers have done away with those little devices, but we still refer to the basic component of a computer system as its core those most essential and fundamental ways in which it processes information. Well, today we come and and return to Paul's message here in Romans 8, and, and he's taking us, if you will, to the sort of core of our thinking, the core of the things of mankind and of the world. He takes us to the fundamental nature of how All of us, one way or another, process everything that we know in life and consequently the way it is applied or the way that it is worked out in our lives. And the whole thing, if you remember, kind of flows out of this paradigm that Paul gave us in verse 4, which we arrived at uh, at the end of our time last week when Paul says that Christ had come removing from us condemnation. And, as he says in verse 4, all of this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is his fundamental paradigm as he looks at this chapter. You remember we mentioned last week, this entire chapter sweeps with one grand statement of assurance from no condemnation in verse 1 all the way to no separation in verse 39. And everything in between is really building that case for us so that we can understand just how certain is our standing in Christ so that we can have removed, if you will, forever those, those uh, harrowing doubts, all of those debilitating fears that might come over us because of our standing in Christ. And Paul's dealing with this in light of two dominant issues which cast us down into those depths of despair. One would be the ongoing battle we have with sin. The other would be the ongoing realities of suffering. He deals with those two things in this chapter. Really the first 17 verses kind of grappling with the issues of sin. And and the final half of this chapter, if you will, grappling with the issues of of suffering. And his focus, as we started to look last week in this first half, is really on the realities of life 
that abide within us. As we are battling with sin, as we're struggling with sin, Paul has been trying to help us to comprehend not only how God's work on the cross has completely eliminated condemnation for us, but how it has led to an entire new reality for us in our inner man. All of this is predicated on the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is mentioned more times in this chapter than any other chapter in the Scripture, more times by far than even any other part of the book of Romans. This is very much, especially in the first 17 verses, a passage about the realities of the Holy Spirit and the realities of life in the Spirit that come to us. And he wants us to understand how we who are in Christ, we who stand in the benef- as the beneficiaries of the cross, all of us are those who walk according to the Spirit. We're defined, we process, if you will, everything that we process through the the essential core of the Holy Spirit within us. Versus all of those who are outside of Christ who, as Paul says there in verse 4, walk according to the flesh. And these become the two categories of life. This becomes the composite view of the world when it comes to Scripture. We might look at the world and we might divide people up all sorts of ways. We think of them nationally. We think of them uh, ethnically. We think of them socially. However, linguistically, we categorize people in all these different ways. But when God looks out the world, that's not the categories He thinks of. He looks at the world and He categorizes people in two fundamental groups. Those who walk according to the Spirit and those who walk according to the flesh. That's the composite view from the Scripture. There are those whose life is governed by the Spirit. That is the the, the application, finally, that comes out in their life is processed through the Spirit. They, They view life by the Spirit and consequently they walk in life by the Spirit. And those who, contrary to that, their whole life is governed by the flesh. It's governed by what Paul consistently refers to in the book of Romans, this disposition in mankind, disposition that's oriented against God. If you want a simple definition of flesh, that's what it is. It has all kinds of uh, of components in terms of its attitudes and its affections and its tendencies and its drives and its ambitions and all those other things that you could talk about when it comes to the idea of the flesh. But if it's anything, it is that, that uh, part of humanity or that element, I should say, of humanity that is bent against God. And Paul says that there are those whose life is governed by this. They walk by this. This is, if you will, their core. Now, he wants to expand on that. He doesn't want to just leave it at that because he understands it is essential for you to understand this. Not only to understand this, it is essential for you to begin viewing life that way. For you to to comprehend and to grasp and to take on God's view of the world God's view of mankind is to think of life in this way. To think of it in this sort of binary way, if you will. 
Those who walk by the Spirit and those who walk by the flesh. And so Paul expands on this with a series of of contrast, contrasting perspectives and principles and patterns and even positions that he unfolds for us in verses 5 through 9, distinguishing the walk from the flesh and the walk from the Spirit, the walk in the Spirit. Or, Or we might say, as he really dives into this, distinguishing the mind of unbelief and the mind of belief. The mind of unbelief and the mind of belief. He sets these things in contrast, but really as you go through the passage, what really is prominent, what Paul really wants you to to comprehend is, is this aspect or this functioning, we might say, of this unbelieving mind. As he unfolds all this, that's where the prominent part of the passage is. He'll eventually, in verse 10, turn his attention to the mind of genuine belief and the life of the Spirit who animates our mind and sanctifies our life and gives us assurance in our relationship with God. But before Paul gets to that in detail, with everything that he goes into, he goes through this extended contrast between the mind of the Spirit and the mind of the flesh with a lot of detail Helping us to understand that all that we see taking place around us in all of our loved ones and all of our co-workers, our family members and friends and neighbors, with everything going on around us and the choices that they make either for or against God, they're not matters of preference. They're not matters of culture. They're not matters of upbringing or personality or any of those things. They are at their most fundamental part. They're spiritual issues. They're defined by this essential core. That is either a life governed by the Spirit or a life governed by the flesh. It's that fundamental part that Paul's driving at in these verses. He makes that initial statement in verse 4. Those who walk according to the Spirit, those who walk according to the flesh. And immediately addresses the issue. What is the source of that? If the If the cross is applied in such a way, if this is the distinguishing category of those who benefit from the cross, then then how do we really know whether or not we're in one of these groups? The answers that I said in these next several verses with these contrasts between the life or the mind of the flesh or the life and the mind of the Spirit. He begins in verse 5 with this contrast of two perspective, uh, two perspectives of the mind. You can see he begins with this little word for, which he uses over and over again in these following verses, expanding and explaining his previous comments. He says, for those who live according to the flesh... They do what? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now this is basic. This is fundamental, but it is essential that you understand it. This is the reason we walk and behave and live and respond the way we do to spiritual things. The issue is our mind, or you might say our mindset. 
And it's obvious, you might say, that your actions flow out of your mind, your individual choices. But Paul's driving deeper than that. He's driving not just at your choices, but the very mindset that determines your choices, the very core that goes into those processes. One is a mindset that's either governed by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, or governed by the flesh. This idea, as I said, of the flesh is not your, not your physical body. It's not the, the, the muscular tissue that covers your, your skeleton or your bones or anything like that. This is the spiritual part of you that, that is inclined either against God or for God. And all of this uh, activity that you see going on is patterned after one of these two factors. The mind of the flesh governs the choices of those who walk in the flesh. It governs their behavior, governs their affections and their attitudes. And this, of course, is the mind of unbelief. The, the, The mind set on the flesh is the mind that is set on unbelief doesn't necessarily mean that it is set always on the most corrupt, the most uh, amoral things, the most wicked things, but it is set fundamentally on a pattern that is governed by this world, by its systems, by its values. These are the kind of things that motivate, that preoccupy the ambitions and goals of the flesh. It all ultimately manifests itself in how you spend your time, your energies, what you concentrate on. It works itself out in all kinds of ways. As I said, it's not always the most atrocious behavior culturally defined. It may not always be worst forms of sexual immorality or murder or all those things. But if you flip over in your Bibles, you can see one place where Paul works this out in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 and verse 19, Paul lists a series of works of the flesh, which involve most certainly things like sexual sin, which he talks about in verse 19. But even in verse 20, he talks about things such as idolatry or sorcery, or listen to this, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, Drunkenness, orgies, and all kinds of such things, Paul says. I mean, all the things that are arrayed against God's will and against His holy order. These are the the characteristics, if you will, the defining sort of uh, uh, outworking of this fleshly mind. You could look at other passages. You could look at, you know, Ephesians chapter Four, which talks about the mind of the unbeliever, which is all about grief and about a hardness of heart against the things of God. Those are yet other expressions of this fleshly mindset. Or John puts it this way, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all this in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So these are the things that sort of define this mindset. Pride of life, the desires of the flesh, uh, the, the, the desires of the eyes, you might say, those are the, sort of the, the uh, covetous or greedy pursuits of life. This is those, this is those 
whose mind is not governed by the Spirit, whose mind is governed simply by those appetites or those attitudes or those propensities which are natural to man. Now, all of this in theological terms is sometimes called simply depravity. And sometimes we, we uh, qualify that to say total depravity. Meaning not that people are totally as wicked as they could be. But when, when a theologian uses that term total depravity, what they mean is that depravity has touched your totality. Every part of you. Mind, body, spirit. Every part of you has been affected by depravity. So that at your deepest uh, uh, parts, your deepest resource, recesses, you are, you are impacted and marred by the realities of sin. And because of that, your mindset is affected. Your choices are affected. Your emotions are affected. Even your reasoning. So we could say that you're affected rationally, sentimentally, and volitionally. The mindset on the the Spirit is affected in all those ways. It isn't just theologically ignorant or backward. It is governed by the flesh in every category such as that. Their entire person then becomes under the influence of the flesh. On the other hand, Paul says there are those who are governed by the mind of the Spirit, which is set on the things of the Spirit. Its pattern of thinking, its pattern of reasoning are founded on spiritual realities that have been revealed in the Word of God. Its affections are moved by those spiritual realities. Its choices are governed by those things. And if you wanted to summarize it in one simple way, the mind, the person whose mind is set on the the spirit, they relish spiritual things. It's not saying that they're perfect. It's not saying that they always make the right choice based on those realities. But when, when really probed and when really pushed, At their very heart, they relish spiritual things. These are the things which are important to them. All of this is true. And the reality, no matter how religious you are, no matter whether you've been brought up in church or attend church or practice some form of religion or whatever it might be, That's not the divide that Paul has in mind. He doesn't divide people based on whether or not they go to church or don't go to church or go to synagogue or don't go to synagogue. What divides them is what's at your core. What governs the way that you think. Now he expands on that in verse 6 with two principles of thinking. Two principles of thinking. This is the way it works out. He says, for the mindset on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit, or sorry, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Once again, you see him sort of expanding on this with this this conjunction, this particle four, and he's telling us that these patterns of thought arise not simply out of some external condition or some sort of external influence, 
they arise out of the reality, or we might say the spiritual condition of the person. One is a condition of death, and the other is a condition of life and peace. This is the the, the explanation behind this kind of thinking, spiritual life and spiritual death. These are, in other words, not simply the results of your thinking. These are the very cause of them. The mindset on the flesh, Paul says, is death. It is death. He doesn't say it leads to death. He says it is death. It isn't that those who whose mind is set in this way, are going to die, they are already dead. It's a reality for them now. He's using this term in the same way he's used it since chapter 5, really. In not, not speaking about the eventual consequences in our life, the eventual death that will come to us, but using it as he did even back in chapter 5. If you go back there, remember in verse 12, When he talked about, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin spread to all men because all sinned, or you go down to verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God through that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Remember, if you were with us during that time, we talked about how can that be where By one man's sin, death spread to other people who haven't even been born yet. How can that be? Because he's not talking about physical death. You can't physically die before you're born. But what you can happen is you can be condemned and cursed with spiritual death before you're born. And this is a reality that he's talking about. Every one of us born in this world, are born under the curse of Adam and therefore born under spiritual death. And Paul consistently uses that term in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and now in chapter 8 with that all-encompassing view, this idea not just of physical death but of spiritual death. So the mind that is set on the flesh is death. This is ultimately what explains this kind of behavior. This kind of mind, this kind of action, this is who you are if you walk this way. You have a mind of the flesh that is cut off from life because it's cut off from God. And so the pursuit of fleshly things is death in itself. It testifies to death. It does ultimately result in death, but it arises out of death. Death is the cause as well as the result. Constantly leading in this direction because there's an unbreakable link between this mindset of death and the condemnation that Paul talked about even back in verse 1. You're living this way because you are not only going to be condemned, you still are condemned. You still are walking under this condemnation of Adam. On the other hand, The mind that is set on the spirit reflects spiritual life. Paul says it is life and peace. It's not that by going out there and doing good things, you achieve life and peace. This isn't the result. This is the cause. The reason that you live this way, the reason that you think and comprehend and process this way is because you have, as Paul says all the way back in Romans chapter 5, you have peace with God. 
You're no longer hostile. You're no longer at enmity with him. You're no longer at war with him. But your relationship, your status with God now is one of peace. It demonstrates a heart and a mind that is alive to God. It has peace, but it also has life, alert to spiritual realities, thirsting for God, hungering for Him so that you can feed that part of your uh, person now who is, who is growing and thriving in the Spirit. And you know that you will not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, when you hear God's Word, when you read God's Word, it impacts you. It is alive to you. You're moved by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that He brings through His Word. You're sensitive to God. You feel a deep sense of of remorse over your sin as it's pointed out to you. You feel a deep sense of thankfulness in your heart to God. You delight to give Him praise and you love to hear others do it. In fact, it's your greatest delight. And all of these are the signs that you are walking by the Spirit. It's not that you're perfect. It's not that you have got it all together. It's not that you never make mistakes and that you somehow are, are uh, living up to this standard of God's truth in every way, every day. But at your heart and at your core, when you process and look out on life, this is what drives you. What drives you are spiritual realities. You want to obey God. You want to please God. You want to praise God. You want all of your life to be fed on Him. You're disappointed when it doesn't. Because you're spiritually driven. And just like there's an unbreakable link between the condemnation of death and the spiritual death that's within you, there's an unbreakable link between what Paul says back in chapter, in in, in verse uh, uh, 2, this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, there's an unbreakable link between this, this reality of the work of Christ and the life that He brings and the life that's within you. These spiritual realities are alive within your hearts and they reflect God and God's life within you. His Holy Spirit within you. They are the evidence that He will most assuredly raise you up on the final day. Now these two realities, the spiritual death and the spiritual life, they are the defining conditions of our thinking. We have a spiritual mindset or we have an outlook on life because we are either one way or the other. We are either spiritually alive or we're spiritually dead. There is no middle ground. When you go to the doctor and you're standing in front of him for examination, he doesn't begin by saying, no, the first thing we need to do is we need to determine whether or not you're alive. I mean, he can assess that pretty quickly, right? Or he doesn't say, well, let me figure out how much alive you are. You may not be in the best health, but he makes an immediate judgment. Are you dead on arrival or are you alive? Because he understands that you're one or the other, right? There is no such thing as someone who's partly alive or partly dead or any of those things. In the same way, spiritually, you cannot be partially alive spiritually. 
It's not as if you are somewhere in between death and life, or some days you're spiritual alive and some days you're not, or you're alive to some things of God and you're not to others. You are either alive or dead. This is the view of life. You either have God's life living within you, and it's governing your attitudes and the realities that you understand the world through, or you have spiritual death. And it is the mindset through which you view the world. People don't want to think that way. They don't want to look at life that way. There are a lot of people who think that religion is something you turn off and turn on, or they think it's something you compartmentalize, or they think it's something that you sort of... um, Uh, confined to a day of the week or a couple of activities every now and then. But that's not the biblical view. That's not the reality. The reality is you're either someone whose mind is death or whose mind is life and peace. You're in one of these two spiritual realms. Now Paul takes it even deeper with another explanatory clause in verse 7. And he takes us then to two patterns of conduct. So he helps us now to understand where all this comes from. It comes from these two ways of thinking, which come from these two fundamental principles of death and life that are within us. And then he tells us in verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, listen to this, it's hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot he says. In fact, those who are in the flesh, verse 8, they cannot please God. That's really an astounding statement. If you are in the flesh, if you're not of the Spirit, if you're not walking, if your mind isn't of the Spirit, you cannot please God. It doesn't matter how religious you are. You might assume that if you take someone who is irreligious and if you could at least convince them to start going to church and to start doing some good deeds and maybe start giving uh, to the church or something like that, that God would look at their life and He would at least be pleased with those activities even if He's still unpleased with all the others. But what the Scripture tells you is that even when you do those things, even as you're doing those things, You still cannot please God. Why? Because everything you're doing is funneling through or being processed through the same uh, uh, matrix, if you will. That's why, if you look back in the book of Genesis, two men bring an offering to God, Cain and Abel. Cain brings his offering from the labors where he had sweated by his brow, if you will, the fruit of the ground. He brings his grain offering to the Lord and then Abel brings his from the flocks that he kept. And the scripture says the Lord had regard for Abel's sacrifice, but for Cain's sacrifice he had no regard. And people read that and they think, well, God must have wanted Lambs and not grain. No, that's not the case. In fact, later on in the law, God commands even grain offerings. He's, he's pleased with whatever offering you can bring. Two little pigeons, if that's all you can afford. The issue wasn't what they did. The issue is what's in their heart. And Hebrews 11.6 makes it clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So all of these acts that you do, all of these 
activities you engage in. And no matter how moral, outwardly religious, whatever they might be, if they're presented in faith, then they're pleasing to God. But if they're presented from a heart that is dead, no matter how uh, magnanimous they may be, they are unpleasing to God. Because the heart that is set on the flesh cannot please God. It cannot please God. This is what Paul's telling us here. It's the universal testimony of Scripture that this is where the unbeliever stands. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He's without strength, Romans 5.10 told us. Romans 5.6, he's the enemy of God. Colossians 1, he's alienated and hostile from God. And even Paul tells us, look, you can go, 1 Corinthians 13, you can give your body to be burned. You can give away all your goods to feed the poor. But if you don't have love, what are you? Nothing. If you don't have a proper heart, a proper attitude, a proper motivation, what does it amount to before God? Nothing. It doesn't please God. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever and you're walking by the flesh throughout the rest of the week and you're here today because you think somehow you're going to mullify God, God's not pleased. He isn't any more happy with you today than He was yesterday because He knows you're living after the flesh. God's not impressed. You might impress other people. You might impress your wife or your children or other people. But if your mindset is set on the flesh, you are uh, uh, walking in death, and if you are hostile to God's law and God's word in that sense, if you are in all of those things, then you, whatever you're doing, you're not pleasing to God. It's interesting, this word hostile is used only a few times in Scripture. One of the most notable, James 4, 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You hear, the, you hear this sort of dichotomy in biblical thinking that's repeated over and over and over again? There is no in-between. I'm not a friend of the world three days a week and a friend of God four days a week. I'm not a friend of the world during the work week and a friend of God at home and on the weekends. I'm not a friend of God whenever I want to be a friend of God and a friend of the world whenever it helps me. I'm either one or the other. I'm either spiritually alive to God and everything I'm doing is running through that grid. It's being processed at that core and I'm looking at life now because of these spiritual realities or even in my most noble moments, I'm processing things because of how people are going to view me around me, how they're going to think of me because at the end of the day, I am really about myself. You know, that's what it comes down to. Jesus said it this way, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it, he says in Luke 9, 23 and 24. It's the only way. It's not like you give God a couple hours a week. It's not like you give Him part of yourself. It's not like you give Him a a devotional room in your house and the rest of the rooms are for you and your career and your pleasures. You're His or you're not. You're filled with His Spirit, His life, His realities. Your affections are set on Him. 
or they're not. And the way, one of the ways you know this, one of the ways you see this most clearly is the Word of God. That's why Paul talks about it, right? In verse 8, verse 7 and 8, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Why? Because it doesn't submit itself to God's law. It cannot. You just, you just put the Word of God in front of someone. You say, look, this is what the Word of God says. And if they react against it and they say, I don't care what God's Word says, that's not what I believe. I don't care what God's Word says. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what it says. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. You put the Word of God in front of them and that is the determining factor. Their attitude towards this Word, their attitude of submission, because this is the reality is that God demands allegiance, absolute allegiance in your life to Him. And unless you're willing to surrender your life to Him, unless you're willing to declare your allegiance to Him, you're not His. You're still walking according to the flesh. You belong to yourself and you belong to the flesh. You might do some outward religious things, but they're not pleasing to God. The reality is you're hostile. You might have covered it up and masked it by a sophisticated outward veneer. You might have masked it by some highly educated background and a professional white-collar career. You might have masked it by religious activity. But the reality is You don't delight in the Word of God. It is grudging when you abide by it. It's not your lifeblood. It's not your heartbeat. It's not what you feed on. You feed on your own lusts, your own pleasures, your own vengeance, your own animosity, your own kingdom. You are a friend of the world. You're engrossed in it. Your allegiance is to it. You serve it before you serve God. And the reason you do that is because you're hostile to God. You're hostile to God. Now the scripture tells you this. To awaken you. To help you understand. That although you might have thought that you are somehow a this free agent who goes out there and just decides when you want to serve God and when you want to serve sin. The Bible doesn't give you such a favorable assessment. It tells you that in fact the reason that you're serving sin the way you're serving is because you're enslaved to it. You say, I'm not enslaved to sin. I mean, you religious people, you guys are the ones, you know, you're just kind of following after your traditions or your parents made you do this, your culture, whatever. I mean, you're just kind of following after all these external things. I'm the free person. I'm the one who's kind of independent. I'm, I'm free from all of your religious expectations and your, your religious external constraints. I'm the free person. Jesus, you remember, told the Pharisees one time, he says, his disciples will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, those listening to him, the Jews responded and said, 
we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you set us free? They resented the whole idea that their life of rebellion against God, their life of sin was somehow slavery. But this is the biblical view. The biblical view, which is altogether rejected, I understand, by unbelievers. But the unbeliever is one who walks according to the flesh. And he wants to boast in his freedom. He wants to think of himself as ultimately capable of doing whatever he chooses to do. But listen to the Scripture here in Romans 7. The Scripture declares here and in so many other places, the mind that is set on the flesh is not only hostile to God, it doesn't submit itself to the law of God. Listen, it cannot. You're not submitting to the law of God today. God is not your chief affection and the Scripture is not your chief love and church is not your favorite place. Not because you're making that choice, it's because you're unable to. You can't. You don't have the spiritual resources. You are enslaved to the deadness of your own soul. Over and over and over again, the Scripture tells us this. In fact, we might say in many respects, you want to proclaim your free freedom. In many respects, you are free. You're doing exactly what you want to do. Your mind is certainly free in its moral choices. There's a freedom of your will. You're simply choosing over and over again what your inner inclinations are. But that's the problem. Your inner inclinations are against God. And so you have no excuse when you come stand before Him one day in judgment. The person whose mind is set on the flesh resists God's will. He chooses what is sinful, not because of some external obstruction, but because of internal compulsion. Nothing's preventing the unbeliever from obedience except his own depraved mind. He's simply acting in conformity to the decision of his own mind. This is what Jonathan Edwards meant whenever he talked about the freedom of man's will. Man is perfectly free to do what he morally chooses all the time. The problem is he doesn't have the moral capacity to choose God. His mind is hostile. His will is corrupt. It's tainted in every way. It's constrained not externally, but internally constrained by its own nature. Just as a fool invariably makes foolish judgments, and so he is declared to be a fool, the sinner invariably thinks and acts sinfully. Because it's who he is. And Paul's telling us the issue is that you're fundamentally spiritually dead. You're unable to do the will of God You have the physical, you have the mental capability, but you have the moral incapability. It's not a defect of your body and mind that deprives you of knowing what God tells you to do. It's not some external prevention. What prevents you is your own nature. You're compelled by your flesh. And so when you reject the Word of God, when you reject His will, when you spurn Him over and over again, you're doing exactly what you want to do. Which is the scary thing when you face God. It's the scary thing when you stand before Him in judgment. As long as you're in that condition, as long as you continue to have that same kind of heart, you will never be able to do anything that pleases God. You will never be able to do anything that pleases Him. 
That's what verse is saying. Those who are, verse 8 is saying, those who are in the flesh, they can't. On the other hand, when God gives a sinner His Holy Spirit to dwell within him, He gives him a new heart and a new mind and a new disposition and his whole life and his whole perspective undergo a change and he goes from someone who is hostile to God and is opposed to God's word to being someone who is at peace with God. Now he isn't always resenting when people are trying to read the word of God to him and asking to do the will of God. He wants to do the will of God. He goes from being dead to God to being alive to God. Now suddenly the law is his delight. Antagonism is replaced with agreement. Resistance is replaced with reverence. Hostility is replaced with honor. And your heart sings to do what God wants. And it grieves you because you know there's still so many times you don't. But when you wake up each morning and each day, you want to do the will of God. Your life is now oriented around these spiritual realities. Now suddenly all of your delights begin with God and they end with God. He is now the chief goal of your life. He's the source from which all goodness comes and you know it. You're absolutely certain of it because you have seen the deadness of your flesh. I love that prayer in Chronicles 29, 1 Chronicles 29, when David was taking up an, an offering from the people to build the temple. It was a temple eventually his son Solomon would build, but David was the one that led the fundraising effort on that. I'm always encouraged, you know, it takes a while to raise money for a building. 1 Chronicles 29, David's raising these funds, and he says, Who am I and what is my people? That we should be able thus to offer so willingly to you. For all things come from you. And of your own we have given to you. God, we haven't done anything that you haven't enabled us to do to begin with. He says, oh Lord God, all of this abundance that we have provided for a building, or for building you a house for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. I know God that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness, in uprightness of heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you, O Lord God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. That's our prayer every day. For those of us who walk by the Spirit, that's our prayer every day. Oh, Lord, God, keep forever the purposes and thoughts of our hearts toward you. And forever direct them towards you. Because God is the source and He is the goal of all that we do. He transforms everything we do with our life, with our family, with our words, our time, our career, our leisures. Because we understand what he says. If you want to find your life, the only way is to lose it. We understand that he demands full allegiance. And we gladly give it. And so the ability and the will to do what's pleasing to God must come from God. In the words of Jesus Christ... You must be born again. 
you must be born again. And so with Jesus, we do not implore you to just seek to please God with more outward religious life. We implore you, be born again. Be born again. It's the only way that God will receive anything. And this is sort of the fourth contrast that Paul makes. The celebration he shows in the work of the hearts of these believers in Rome. In verse 9 he says, he changes now from the third person plural. Talking about these people who walk according to the flesh. He now talks to them in the second person. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. He's using a conditional statement here, but it's a statement that assumes the truth. You're not in the flesh and in the Spirit if, in fact, as He does, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you, you don't think this way. You don't act this way anymore. He has transformed your heart and your life. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. We call it regeneration. We call it new birth. And it's nothing less than a spiritual resurrection within you. A bringing out of spiritual life where previously there was nothing but spiritual death. Awakening your heart to these spiritual realities. Aligning your heart with a love for God above all things. This is the work that takes place in the heart of every believer and it is in accordance with the promise of God. Which he gave in the Old, covenant, in the Old Testament when he promised the New Covenant. A new covenant work that would be inaugurated by Christ. And once Christ established that covenant, sealed it, if you will, with His death on the cross. Now every believer inherits those precious promises. In Jeremiah 31, I will put a, uh, a new spirit within you so that you will walk according to my commandments. And you will be my people and I will be your God, he says. And Jesus himself even says this. He says, he says, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but because I'm going away, he will be in you. He tells his disciples at another point, if I don't go away, then the comforter couldn't come. But because I go away, I'm going to send you the comforter. And he will be with you forever. And so this is the promise, and this was the work that was, that was accomplished, or I should say inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, so that now, now every believer is a temple of God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives within you. He abides in you if you're a believer. In fact, Paul can say it this way. If anyone, he says in, at the end of verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ He doesn't belong to him. You see how seamlessly he shifts from the Spirit of God to the Spirit of Christ because it's all Trinitarian. He's talking about the life of God within you. And he's saying this, there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. I remember talking to a guy in my uh, living room, actually in his living room one time. And asking him about his relationship with God. And he says, well, uh, I said, are you a Christian? He said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, well, great. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'd love to have you come visit us at church sometime. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. 
I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I mean, when I was young, I mean, I, my, my mom led me in a prayer and I became a Christian, but I haven't received the Holy Spirit, so I'm not a disciple. So I opened up to him, Romans 8 9, I explained to him, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not His. Everybody who's His has this Spirit, meaning that everybody who belongs to Christ has this life. They've had this transformation, they have these new propensities, these new realities. They have a new core processor, if you will, through which everything now runs. No one belongs to Christ if he hasn't experienced this. No one enters to heaven if he hasn't been born again. Just like sin totally affects your whole person, total depravity, so that your affections and your volition, your choices and your reasoning are all impacted by sin. When the Spirit comes and takes residence within you, all of those things are equally impacted. Now there's a new affection in your heart. Now there are new uh, ways of reasoning and processing the world around you. Now there are new choices. And they're all governed by this Spirit. Jesus said, if you want to find life, you want to find life you have to lose it because the life that you need to find is inside and it's not doesn't come from you it doesn't come from finding yourself psychologically it comes from the spirit of god you must be born again you must be born again you sat maybe week after week after week and you've heard messages on the Word of God, and it has seemed to you like some sort of uh, distant uh, tale, some, some cultural phenomenon, some external thing that was imposed by people's circumstances. And all the while, you have viewed God from a distance in your spiritual deadness. He's never been alive to you. It's because you're spiritually dead. And the challenge to you from the scripture today is that you wouldn't, you wouldn't go on in that, still under the condemnation of Adam. That you would repent. That you would believe. That you'd be born again. We're going to close in a moment in a word of prayer and with a song. And I'm always here. Our elders are here. Our Sunday school teachers are here. We encourage you, find one of us. If you, if you know this is your condition, if you know that you're here in spiritual deadness today, if you need this spiritual life, find us. We'd love to pray with you and show you from Scripture how you can have it. Stand together and bow together as I lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for so much the work as David says it is you who has brought out all that is worthy of anything within us and so we pray would you keep us seeking your face keep our hearts and our minds directed towards you Lord without you we are nothing but how delightful it is to have experienced your spirit to know your life giving power 
to be renewed day by day in Him. Lord, we're grateful that You've given us life. You've given us peace. And the result of that is peace and life in our hearts. We pray for those, Lord, who are here, who don't know You, who are still standing in their spiritual deadness. We pray, Father, You'd be merciful to them as You have to us and bring them to Yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.